One thing government contracting shops are sticklers for, receiving bids by the stated deadline. Two days or two seconds late and would-be contractors are out of luck. That's true even if the government's own IT systems screw up or cause the lateness. We get the latest test case from Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo. And Joe, in this case, a company did send their stuff and it got to the government in time and they were still out of luck. Let's start with what the rules are for on time because they're pretty strict. The same rules apply to bids, proposals, and whether or not the item being purchased is a commercial product or service. The solicitation will designate someone to receive the bid or proposal and a deadline for that receipt. And unless it's received by that person at, before that time, the bid or proposal is considered late. Now, there are three exceptions to considering a bid or proposal that's late. They will apply so long as the bid or proposal is, in fact, received before award, and accepting it wouldn't unduly delay the acquisition. The first exception is that it was the only proposal received at all, and that's obviously going to be a pretty rare case. The second exception is that it was received at the designated government installation and was under the government's control prior to the deadline and continued to be under the government's control. The third exception is if the solicitation authorizes an electronic submission and the bidder proposal was received, and I'm going to quote here, at the initial point of entry to the government infrastructure, not later than 5 p.m., one working day prior to the date specified, unquote, for the receipt of bids or proposals. So those are the three exceptions. And this has been the case for a long time, and one vendor thought they might be able to get the GAO to change the rules a little bit. What happened? The situation arose in the context of a procurement of uh, audiovisual support to be used by the Food and Drug Administration. And one offeror, Versa Integrated Solutions, submitted its proposal uh, as required by email to the contracting officer prior to the deadline sent that out prior to the deadline. When it didn't hear back, after a while, it got in touch with the contracting officer and asked about the status and was told its proposal hadn't been received. So they checked their logs and sent in logs from their server indicating that they had, in fact, sent that. The company sent in its logs. The company sent its logs. So when the contracting officer got that information from Versa, it asked its IT department what happened. And a week later, the IT department reported that, in fact, the email had been received by the government's system before the deadline, but it had been quarantined because the proposal that had been attached contained macros. And that was the, you know, that that, that was fatal under the government system. So basically, it went into the trash folder or the uh, spam folder. Basically, that's what happened. And the contracting officer said, well, sorry, your proposal's late, can't be considered. We're moving on with the procurement. Yeah, Uh, so that would seem like they met the rule because it was in the government systems that 24 hours before the deadline as stated for electronic transmissions. We're speaking with Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo. What happened when they protested? Well, they protested to the Government Accountability Office and said exactly what, what, you know, made that same argument that you've just mentioned. You got, you got it, it was under your control, and it was before the deadline. Why can't this be considered? They recognized, Versa recognized, that GAO had previously held that exception does not apply to submissions which are sent electronically. 
The only one exception that does apply, the exception that does apply in that instance is the one we went over in which it has to be received by the government infrastructure a day before the deadline. And it wasn't. It was the day of the deadline. So that didn't work. Versa said, you know, you've had this rule for a long time, GAO, but please change it because we think it's it's not fair and it's excluding us from competition. And GAO said, nope, we're not going to do that and continue to stay with a uh, line of cases it, it has had going back around 20 years. Just to clarify, the company sent it on the deadline day and not the day before as is required to be on time for electronic submissions? Right, exactly. So now we've got a situation where the company sent its proposal in, hoping it would get get there. It was received by the government uh, system, and and problems with the government system kept it from being considered. We've got a system, I think, that doesn't really work in the 21st century. It sounds like the 24-hour ahead-of-the-deadline rule dates back to when systems were less reliable or they were slower and we didn't have all of these instant systems and fast internet that exists today. That's exactly right. In fact, that rule dates back to um, when proposals were submitted by couriers, express mail, uh, for instance. And, you know, they didn't want to trust express mail. So they said, send it in a day before the deadline for receipt the day before the deadline. And we'll consider it if it gets here. You know, at this point, you've, you've got to think that there have to be better solutions to this. Why aren't offerors told that their proposals are going to be quarantined if they contain macros? Why isn't there a system that tells the proposer, your submission's been received? We get that in electronic commerce all the time. Why isn't the contracting officer told that an email to you is being quarantined? Might be something important, like a proposal. There ought to be technological solutions to this. Maybe there should be a single point of entry. But there isn't. And uh, as a result, people will lose out uh, on bidding opportunities through no fault of their own, really. And what would happen if the contracting officer just decided to consider that bid anyway, and it was a great bid and they got the award, even though technically the thing came 23 hours before the deadline and not 24 hours before the electronic deadline? Well, at the GAO, at least, it, it, it seems that the um, they, they, they would stand the the risk of having their award overturned because J.O. is saying that the exception we talked about for receipt of the government installation does not apply to electronic submissions. Yeah, or another losing bidder that was on time could say, could protest saying this contracting officer violated the rules of on time if it knew about that. Exactly. That's that's the risk that the agency would be taking, it seems. And, um, and I'm not sure this is really a, a problem with the regulation so much as it's a problem with the systems. But, but somehow it just doesn't seem fair that differences in the government systems and architecture cause this kind of problem. All right. So if the deadline for solicitations is 5 o'clock on Friday, again, electronically, you've got to have it there 5 o'clock Thursday. Yeah, it's assuming it's um, five o'clock is the deadline. Actually, the <laughs> regulations provide a default time of receipt, which is four thirty, <laughs> not five o'clock. All right, so send it just to be safe. Send it four thirty on Wednesday, and then you're two days ahead. That would seem to be the the the, the, the most prudent case. And you know, these bidding deadlines can be tight as it is, and losing a day uh, it can be a problem. But that seems to be where things are right now. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom.
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. 
And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.